So I want to continue with a series of teachings that I started last, last month, or last Monday class that I did. I did a couple of talks, or a few, since the election time on spirituality and politics. And as Gandhi said, those who think that uh, spirituality and politics don't go together do not understand what spirituality really means. That it, it's, um, so that, that seemed very important to talk about. However you voted, or whatever your political point of view, it's a very um, fraught time in many ways, and a time of much uh, dissension and upheaval um, and change. So something really worthy of paying attention to. And um, tonight, in continuing this series for a number of months now, I want to talk about Buddha nature, um, or your own true nature, and in particular this evening to talk about the, the joy or the happiness of integrity, um, which is really basic Buddhist teachings. Um, these are called the qualities of awakening, and of course one image that's used, because they're sometimes translated as the perfections, is that there's a mountain, Mount Vipula, that's as high as Mount Everest, higher a little bit, and every hundred years a bird comes along with a silk scarf in its beak and drags it across the top of this mountain, wearing it away slightly. And when that mountain is worn down by the silk scarf, that is one Mahakalpa, and to become fully awakened in this particular mythology or, you know, glorious awakened Buddha takes a hundred thousand Mahakalpas like that and then four immensities thrown in just to make it a little bit more interesting. So you hear that and you think, all right, I've got to practice patience for a hundred thousand Mahakalpas and I have to practice kindness for a hundred thousand Mahakalpas and I have to practice wisdom and practice so forth. It seems a little bit daunting. You know, it's hard enough to do it like for New Year's resolution for a few weeks. Um, I'm going to meditate, right? And then the silk scarf goes by, okay, wait another 100,000 Mahakalpas. Um, and when you hear this kind of a, a story, um, a misunderstanding is to place it in time that if you train and practice and change yourself and do all these things that eventually through zillions of hours and lifetimes and so forth you'll become somebody different. I know you've tried that already in your own way and it didn't work very well. You're still yourself, sad to say, but also happy to say. Because the qualities that this represent don't exist in time. They're actually timeless, universal, eternal. And so they, this becomes the metaphor for discovering something that's outside of time. The question is not the future of humanity, but the presence of eternity. And a couple of years ago, I went to the top of Mount Tamalpais because it was the day of a transit of Venus across the face of the sun. And somebody up there, there were a few people with telescopes, somebody had a great big telescope, very, really cool you know, with all the filters and things, so I could look in. And first there was the big disc of the orange sun, and it was alive, you know, when you see those videos and things, all those kind of changing textures and things. In real time, it was very vital and alive and moving and swirling with fire and light and all its nuclear energy. 
And then there was this little marble, you know, maybe one fortieth of its diameter, little black marble that slowly over the course of an hour or an hour and a half moved its way across the face of the sun. That marble being about the size of our planet as well. And somehow in looking at it, I could feel that we're on the same ride going around the sun and then Venus is and Mars and so forth. And that we're part of some huge, vast turning of the worlds and the seasons and the galaxies. And that is true. And then we have all our, you know, problems. But as the <laughs> Ojibwe say, sometimes I go about pitying myself when all the while I'm being carried by great winds across the sky. So the teachings for tonight, which are really rock-bottom, basic central to dharma or to those who would live a, a spiritual life. Um, I have talked about politics and spirituality, but this is really, really basic. Um, are a way of anchoring ourselves in what we know to be most important amidst the politics and the fear-mongering or racism or war or all those kind of things that we see in the kind of culture around us. These are the universal laws of human happiness in the midst of all these different cycles. Now in modern times there's a kind of sense or, or uh, sensibility about cultural relativity and what's right and what's wrong. You need to take in the perspectives of different peoples and different cultures. And those things, of course, need to be respected. But this is something deeper than that. So there is in, in Psych 101 um, an experiment that's done uh, in the perception section where you get the unwitting student to come up to the front of the class and you have three buckets a bucket in the middle with neutral temperature water, a bucket on one side with very hot water, and a bucket on the other side with water and ice in it. And you have the student plunge their hands into the hot, very hot water and the very cold water and hold them there for pretty much as long as they can, like 30 seconds, it gets really intense. And then pull their hands out and put them in the middle bucket. And when your hands are in the middle bucket and you watch the student, their face, their eyes kind of go a little wobbly because their hands are touching and this hand says, this is really cold, you know, that was in the hot water. And this hand says, it's really hot. Because our perceptions and the stories we tell about them are relative in a certain way. But underneath this truth of perceptions, there are some fundamental principles of human life and of conscious life. Um, and virtue is one of them. Um, I mean, we take it relatively, oh, it's okay to cheat a bit on our taxes or to drive a bit over the speed limit. Yes, I was a cab driver in Boston. I have a whole lot of um, unfortunate driving habits that I learned there. <laughs> we only took red lights as a suggestion, right? <laughs> you know, so we all have our things, or insider trading, everybody's doing it, right? So you get a little hint and then you buy the stock or whatever. There was a hospital in Illinois um, 
a state hospital that was alongside a toll road. Um, and because it had just one the hospital and a few, few other streets on it, they didn't have a toll booth. Instead, there was a place to throw your money in the, in the uh, exit. Um, and uh, one of the psychologists there decided to do a little research. And with the, with the camera that was there, um, observed which people who worked at the hospital paid their toll and which cruised through without paying their toll. And then he did an interesting thing. He tried to correlate it with the success of their therapies and the, and the success of, of their patients in getting well. It was, it was some kind of, it was a psychiatric hospital. And I don't know quite how he measured that success, but maybe it was how soon people were released. or So he had some good measurement. And he discovered that the people who paid their tolls, their patients got better quicker. So there's something almost basic beneath all the, you know, different stories that we hear about virtue or integrity or ethics, morality, it is the adornment of humanity. And Aristotle says, um, the only stable nation is one built on virtue. The only stable society is one built on virtue. And we, it's so innate in us, you know, again, modern psychology, not only do we know this, but the studies like at Yale University where they track the... Uh, the gaze of infants who are, or young children who are pre-verbal. But if they, you know, not many months old, if they show them or put them in a situation where something is unfair and one baby gets a lot and the other baby doesn't, they don't like it. That's not right. You know, they can't say anything yet, but you can see that it upsets them. Even, you know, the great apes or chimps don't like it either. In Chicago, I think it was, that even the rats don't like it. And this isn't fair. You haven't treated my sister properly. You know, there's something in us that knows what it means to have a kind of fundamental care and integrity with what we do. And of course, it's not easy. The, the tales that make up these stories from the, you know, thousands of years ago in India from the teachings of the Buddha um, they also use these animal fables and so there's one story of a, a king who vowed that he would rule justly and not bring harm to any being and not cause any being to be killed kind of, you know, noble king great sitting on his throne and then in one day in through the window of the throne room flies a dove and lands on the arm of his throne and speaks to the king, because this is a fable, and says, help me, I'm being chased by a hawk. And so then the hawk flies in and lands on the other arm. And the king says, I am protecting this dove. Do not want beings in my kingdom to be killed. And the hawk, who can also speak, these are, you know, cool animals, right? says, Your Majesty, I survive by eating meat. This is what my diet is. I can't, I don't live on berries. That's some other kind of bird. Not, I ain't me. You know, I'm a carnivore. 
I eat and I eat other birds. That's how I was built. That's what my incarnation is. And you are depriving me of the food that I need to survive. Help me. So here we are, right? This is I mean, it's a morality tale. Um, but what do we do in this situation? Now, of course, because these are these are great old morality stories, what does the king do? He says, I cannot let you kill the dove. And he orders the, his attendant to bring out a golden scale. And he places the dove in one part of the scale. And he says, now bring me a sword. And he cuts out flesh from his own thigh and puts it there and says, I will offer to the hawk my own body so that no one else is harmed. It's kind of wild and magnificent gesture. And he does so and he bleeds and then he says, it's not enough, it doesn't. And he cuts more and finally he kind of gets faint. And when he gets faint, all of a sudden, as happens, the hawk turns into one of the great heavenly gods that sometimes it's said their throne gets warm or hot when there's something interesting going down on earth, down here on earth, who comes down to appear and say, I heard there was a just king here, but I wanted to see for myself whether it was true. And so then the hawk turns into this, you know, radiant being and fixes the king. You're okay now, dude, it's fine, you know, and blesses the dove and everything's happy thereafter, something like that. Now you hear a story like this and you think, okay, how am I going to measure up to that? You know, and of course you can't, but at the same time, here's Mahatma Gandhi saying, in the face of unjust laws and those things that are causing suffering, he said, if you make laws to keep us suppressed in a wrongful manner, without harming you in any way, we will never obey. Award us what punishment you like, we will put up with it. Send us to prison and we will live there as in a paradise. Ask us to mount the scaffold and we will do so laughing. Shower your sufferings upon us and we will calmly endure all and not hurt a hair of your body or anyone else. We would gladly die before so much as to touch the slightest of you. But so long as there is life in these bones, we will never comply with the laws that cause harm. So that's a little bit of a human being taking on the kind of power that the that the story of the king and the dove that shows, I mean, it's partly why he's so celebrated where Einstein said at some point in the future people will not even believe that such a person as Gandhi, who was his friend, even walked this earth. It used to be that when a man or a woman took an oath, it wasn't taken lightly. We stood by our character. And my teacher, Ajahn Chah, loved, and the other masters I studied with, loved to talk about virtue, loved to talk about spiritual life. If you want to be happy, the joy comes from your integrity. Peace comes from your integrity. It's actually very hard to meditate after a day of killing and stealing. It doesn't work terribly well. You can try it. Sanity for yourself and the world comes from integrity. 
And any practice in these dimensions that we speak of, last week it was generosity or love, compassion, wisdom, patience, truthfulness and so forth, actually they each, like a hologram, contain all the others. Through the practice of virtue there is compassion, there is mindfulness, there is patience, there is all the great virtues come together. And spiritual life rests upon it. And we know it somehow in both our inner sense of conscience, but as someone wrote as well, the more moral a society, the less paperwork. Right? That there's some way in which we also know that when we live in a community of trust, it changes everything. Without integrity, it's like getting in a rowboat and saying, I'm going to go over there and go somewhere. Meanwhile, the line is still tied to the dock. There's no spiritual life worth anything. No insights, no great bliss, no you know special states. Um, they're worthless if they're not tied to, if they don't grow out of a basis, a field of integrity. Otherwise, they're just kind of fancy stuff that comes and goes. So there are three levels to this virtue or this integrity. The first is called limiting harm. And basically it means entering the human realm because before that you're not even, you may be embodied as a human being but you're not really living. You're living more as a beast or a hungry ghost or something it says. And that is um, to undertake to refrain from, thank you, to refrain from activities that harm one another. And I remember that the local Marin County Sheriff used to park in our parking lot here. I think he would read a book and take a little break from, you know, patrolling the roads or something like that. And it was like, it's a peaceful place. And one of, our, one of my colleagues and a good friend, Ruth Dennison, one of our senior teachers who has since um, died, um, one day I, 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 we were here and I said, oh, the sheriff's out in the parking lot. She said, oh, great, darling. You know, she was, a, she was um, originally born in Germany. And she said, I have to go see him. So she went on the parking lot. And she said, you know, we are making your job easier here from what we are teaching. <laughs> said, you come to the right place. And they had a great conversation. Right. So this is the first level of human... Uh, of human awakening. Um, and the first of these three levels is the level that says, in the fundamental way, I will limit harm. And traditionally, there are certain trainings that one does. Um, the first, or precepts, so different kinds of words for it. The first is not to kill and not to harm living beings. And it's a, a beautiful thing to watch. The Dalai Lama has a special thing for insects and bugs. He doesn't, except for mosquitoes. He said mosquitoes are the enemy. But other than them, <laughs> other than them, he's interested and curious and he doesn't want to harm a single living being. And then I have this beautiful poem that was written, it's magnificent calligraphy by Lloyd Reynolds, who was the nation's premier calligrapher and the, he was actually the master artist who taught um, Steve Jobs when he was up in Oregon before he started Apple what it meant to, to make a beautiful line and his poem reads a bug crawls over the paper leave him be we need all the readers we can get you know 
And there's something quite um, powerful about simply saying, I'm not going to harm beings. Now, I have my own difficulties with it. I mean, I give them notice, right? Okay, you have some days, you ants or whatever, you roaches, and put out more, you know, something that doesn't harm them for a while. But if they're really persistent, then we have to go another step. But Dalai Lama, any, but it gives you the moment to reflect on really caring for life, the small life, the big life, just not to harm and not to kill. And then the next one is not to steal. And it was so ingrained in us in our monastic training that, um, and so important, that if you stole something as a monk that was worth more than a nickel, basically, if you took it, from that moment on you were no longer a monk, even if you were wearing the robes. It was such so deeply forbidden. And it was forbidden, of course, because they wanted people to respect the monastics, but it was also forbidden because it shined a light on what really matters. And if you have a culture where people steal from one another and then there's barbed wire and there's gated communities and there's people who are defending and so forth, where we don't, we don't live in a culture where we trust one another. So to not steal is a really powerful um, practice. Okay, so you don't steal. Next one is um, to not speak falsely. Not to use your words in a way that harm or undermine others. Um, again, to speak with integrity. John invited his mother over for dinner. During the meal, his mother couldn't help noticing how beautiful John's roommate was. She'd long been suspicious about a relationship between John and the roommate, and this only made her more curious. And watching the two interact over the meal, she started to wonder how much more there was than met the eye. And John could see it and volunteered, I know what you might be thinking, but I assure you, Carrie and I are just roommates. A week later, Carrie came to John and said, ever since your mother came to dinner, I've been unable to find that beautiful silver soup ladle. You don't suppose she did something with it, do you? Well, I doubt it, but I'll email her for sure, just to make... Mother, I'm not saying you did anything with the silver soup later or not, but for some reason it's disappeared ever since you were here for dinner. Do you know anything about it? Later in the day, she, he received an email which read, Dear son, I'm not saying you do sleep with Carrie, and I'm not saying you don't. But the fact remains that if she was sleeping in her own bed, she would have found the ladle by now. <laughs> Love, Mom. Right? It's called don't lie to your mother, right? It just doesn't work. And in this time of truthiness and all of those things, to hear, to speak what's true and to hear what's true, to know what's true, is really a blessing. It's, 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 it becomes more valuable than ever. And then to not harm through the misuse of sexuality, you know, whatever it is, adultery or causing pain or so forth. How many people in this room have made idiots of yourself in relation to sexuality? Don't bother. Right? We already know about you. Yeah. It's the, so it's this very powerful force, and it can be used in beautiful ways, or it can be used 
in ways out of our greed or fear or confusion or, or, or other kinds of motivations to cause a lot of suffering. And so again, this just says simply, don't misuse sexuality in a way that causes harm to others. These are, it's not like you're supposed to or this is some morality from on high. These are the principles of happiness. You want to be happy? Follow them. You, you know, they are what are the foundation for a, a truly happy human life. And then the last is not to abuse intoxicants, alcohol and drugs and so forth. 10 million drug addicts, 20 million alcoholics, 50 million people in their extended families in America, the majority of auto fatalities, the majority of home fires, the majority of child abuse. Um, it's really powerful stuff. So again, it says pay attention to these energies of life and navigate them from the place of conscience, from the place of understanding, from the place of mindfulness and care, because that's the treasure that you have. That's who you really are. And that's, what, that's the only thing you can take with you in the end, is your integrity and your virtue. Or as Spencer Tracy, the movie actor, said, just know your lines and don't bump into the furniture. You know, it's that basic, it's that simple. And yet if you were to imagine half of one of these trainings, not even the whole one, let's say we don't kill people, we can all kill animals, or we stop killing people, or we stop, you know, telling lies even though we might, you know, still gossip or things like that, or, or, um, or whatever it is, even a little bit of it spread across the earth would make an entirely different planet. Imagine if we didn't kill each other. Kind of crazy that we do, don't you think? Really crazy. It's about time we've more or less come to the conclusion that slavery is bad, even though there still is slavery in some places in the world. I think it's about time that we came to the conclusion that war is bad and that there's an alternative to... I mean, when you have kids in kindergarten and they're whacking each other with the blocks, you say, use your words, right? Gosh, you guys, how about the grown-ups? You know, some of these world leaders, could you use your words? The earth is too small a star, and we too brief visitors upon it for anything to matter more than the truth, more than what we care about, our own virtue. So the next level, and you can hear how they become more beautiful as it goes along, is not only refraining from harm, but either expressing or cultivating compassion. Not just to refrain, but to see somehow that we're all in the same boat. Edmund Burke says, all that is necessary for evil to triumph is that good people do nothing. So this is a really important reflection. It's not just that you refrain from harm, but that it's in your good hands and your heart to care for this world. And again, not because it's some great sort of dictum of morality, of what's, you know, who's good and who's bad. This is what makes a human life beautiful and noble. It is living your own Buddha nature. It's an empowerment. And because we're all connected, we're all cells in the same living body, as Lewis Thomas says, the driving force in nature on this kind of biosphere, this planet Earth, is cooperation. 
he's one of our great biologists, it's cooperation. The most inventive and novel of all schemes in nature, the most significant in determining the great landscape of evolution is symbiosis, which is simply cooperative behavior carried to an extreme. This is, we're woven into life. This is who we are. So then, how we drive, how we use water, how we respond to homelessness or injustice or racism, you know, what we eat, how we care for our brothers and sisters of every color and every orientation and every ability and so forth. This actually becomes the gifts that you are given to produce a beautiful life. And not killing then becomes a reverence for life, a care for the earth. So that when Chief Seattle says, what is mankind without the beasts? If all the beasts were gone, humankind would surely die from a great loneliness of spirit. For what happens to the beasts happens to man. And we know it, but we sort of put it aside and kind of go about our day. And yet the Malay Binderong and the Malabar Civet and the Hawaiian monk seal, and all species of rhino, and 12 species of antelope, and 15 species of turtle, and 22 species of shrews, and all the great apes, the orangutans, and the gorillas, and the chimps, and six species of whales, and all species of manatee, and the golden lemure, and the Indus, and the Yangtze dolphin, and the woolly spider monkey. These are your brothers and sisters. And they're saying, pay attention to me. Don't just refrain from harm, but remember that we too are part of your web of life, woven into the same single garment of destiny. So it's a reverence for life that grows. And then, not stealing turns into concern and care for stewardship for what you have. I mean, we live in a prosperous society. And um, what do we do with it? You know, it's not just not stealing, but it's actually not being piggy. Sorry, Miss Piggy, I didn't mean to say anything really anti-pig to you, but you know exactly what I mean. You know, there are I don't know how many tens of millions of hungry children on this earth. Many tens of millions. My beloved Trudy um, just came back a couple months ago from working in the Darfur refugee camps on the border of Chad and Darfur. And she said many of the kids, most of the adults there, have uh, the orange hair of Kwashiorkor because they don't get enough nourishment. Our grain elevators are full of food. We're telling farmers to plow things under. The world doesn't need more food. Doesn't need more oil. Needs less greed. You know, less prejudice. Needs more love. So it's not just not stealing, but it's the reverence for what we've been given. We read this story about a, an older Jap, Japanese immigrant woman whose job was to clean and tend the bathrooms in a kind of public facility in um, New York. 
and some of the local kind of kids, whatever, came in and sprayed graffiti all over those bathrooms and messed things up the way kids sometimes do. Um, and she was upset, and she left a note on the door that says, um, please do not desecrate my place of work. It was so simple. You know, it was a kind of an unthinking act and a part of the kids in some way. But for her, it was her place of work. And every place on the earth is the place of somebody's work or some creature's work. So we start to take care with things uh, in this world. This is from William Faulkner. He writes, Some things you must always be unable to bear. Some things you must never stop refusing to bear. Injustice and outrage and dishonor and shame. No matter how old you are or how, how young you are. Not for fame, not for cash. Your picture in the paper nor money in the bank. Just refuse to bear them. And you hear it and you know that there's something true in this, that there are things that are mindfulness and compassion when we sit here and quiet the mind and tend the heart, that we touch inside, that knows this is really what matters to me. And then, of course, there's the not to lie, to care for the truth. The Buddha says, speak in due season, speak to the benefit of others, speak that which is honest, and so forth. Um, the people you have to lie to own you. The things you have to lie about own you. When your children see you owned, then they are not your children anymore. They are the children of what owns you. If money owns you, they are the children of money. If your need for pretense and illusion owns you, they are the children of pretense and illusion. If your fear of loneliness owns you, they are the children of loneliness. If your fear of truth owns you, they are the children of the fear of truth. So it's really, especially now with the public discourse about what's true and what's not, um, becoming so alive for all of us, um, it's not so much a time to, you know, put your commentary out there, although you might and you need to act and respond from whatever is your place of integrity. But in terms of truth, it means getting quiet and listening to that truth that's inside yourself, that you know to be so, no matter if everybody else told you that's not true, you know what matters. There's something so fundamental in it. Sexuality. Eros. So the first is not to harm. But it has tremendous power. I mean, if we look at the advertising of the country and the images and the, you know, not to speak of our own teenage years and whatever, it's this enormous power. It's the part of the power of Eros is love and part of it is connecting sexually and it's somehow seeing that, we're, that we have these mysterious ways of being attracted to one another. And sometimes it's to make children or accidentally make children. Sometimes it's just to love another being in this most extraordinary and intimate way. 
And we don't talk about it so much in meditation, but it's absolutely critical. You know, and again, if I were to ask not only how many of you made idiots, how many have suffered in the area of sexuality? We used to have these men's retreats that I would lead here for many years, and one, one of the evenings we'd do a council and men would tell their sexual histories in the center of the room. And um, while there was some beauty and joy in it, there was inevitably confusion, pain, suffering, all the, you know, not knowing how to deal with it. But at the same time, it's magic. When we love somebody and when we can touch someone in, in an intimate way, there's something so... It's, it's as if, you know, we touch things when we walk in the mountains or, or uh, listen to a magnificent piece of music or, you know, are there at the birth of a child or the mysterious passing of a human being. And making love is one of those things. You know, for us. Okay, a poem for you from one of my favorite poets, Ellen Bass in Santa Cruz, one of our great, great poets. And she likes to write a lot, a lot about sexuality. So it's called Jack Gottlieb's In Love. I'm talking to Jack Gottlieb's son, my childhood friend from Pleasantville. He was a skinny, dark-haired guy with a neck thin as the stalk of a dahlia. We lived in railroad apartments over our parents' stores. Now he's balding and quadriplegic from the brush of an eight-axle truck. My father's got a girlfriend, he tells me. He's having more sex than you and me in both of our neighborhoods combined. I picture Jack Gottlieb, 86, stroking the lucid skin, loosened skin of his beloved, puckered as fruit, left too long on the limb. Skin softened the way I once read a pregnant woman stranded alone in a hut in Alaska softened a hide for her baby's birth, chewing it, hours and hours each day. Life has been gnawing Jack Gottlieb like that. First his son, stricken, stripped down to sheer being in the chair. Then his grown daughter died from cancer, and his old wife following like earth into that grave. Comes love. All the cells in Jack's old organs stir, the heart, which had been ready to kick back and call it a day, signs on for another stint. The blood careens through the crusted arteries like a teenage skateboarder. He kisses each separate knob of her spine, the shallow basin of her belly, crowning it like a queen. The sad nave that's hung between his legs, extraneous and out of date, ill-fitting as his old vest, is now steam-pressed and ready for the ball comes love. Jack Gottlieb is a child sledding down a hill and climbing up again, face flushed, breath hot, visible in the twilight. He can't believe her goodness. Life, that desperate addict, has mugged and robbed him on the street. And then she appears, taking his head in her palms. He handles her reverently as though she were the Rosetta Stone, revealing what lies beyond hope. He scoops her into his hands and she pours through his fingers again and again. And Ellen writes about all kinds of sexuality, not just heterosexuality, but every kind. But there's something about the honesty of it. You know, I especially like it because I just got married at, you know, almost 72. And um, so thank you, Jack, you know, for showing the way. Whatever. But there's a way in which 
that energy of Eros, whether it's literally enacted as a sexual energy or the spark between us, also can bring a kind of beauty into the world. And we can cultivate it and care for it. And it's those cultures, actually. I had these friends years ago, back in the 70s, um, who decided to travel around the world and visit all the peaceful, most peaceful cultures they could. They visited the um, Kung Bushmen in Africa, and they visited the Inuit, and they visited cultures where there wasn't a lot of conflict or violence or war. And they said that um, one of the things that was in common of all these cultures um, was that there wasn't a lot of teaching about the afterlife. It was all here, and they had a reverence for the body. And they knew how to dance, you know, which is part of that eros. If you want your revolution, you want a little dance in it. And then it's not just to not abuse intoxicants, but rather to do that which wakes us up. To take time in silence as we did tonight, to listen to our own breath and heart and body, to walk in the mountains, to listen to music, to come together in community. Here again is Zhuangzi, the great Chinese sage. And he says, speaking of intoxicants, a drunken man who falls out of a cart, though he may suffer, does not die. His bones are the same as other people's, but he meets his accident in a different way. His spirit is in a condition of security. He's not conscious of riding in the cart, neither is he conscious of falling out of it. Ideas of life, death, fear, and the like cannot penetrate his breast. And so he does not suffer from contact with, with objective existence. If such security is to be got from wine, how much more is to be found resting in the Tao? And so there's some kind of trust that grows um, that we can live a life that's intoxicated in the right way intoxicated by that crescent little moon that you saw as you drove up here and the cold snap of the spring following the rain and rain and rain that it has been doing you know that everything is insanely green like we're living in Ireland or something like that thank you and hallelujah um, and that there's something about letting yourself be intoxicated by the life around you and by each person that you meet and by the things that you know, present themselves. And this level, the level of reverence, knows that life is complicated, but that underneath there's an intention of the heart to care for it all. Like a parent. And it doesn't mean you want to judge other people so much. That's a, not a very helpful thing in virtue. All right? This from Elizabeth Taylor. The problem with people who have no vices is that generally you can be sure they're going to have some pretty annoying virtues. Right? <laughs> so the point isn't somehow holier than thou. It's not that at all. It's actually love. I mean, you almost can't separate virtue and love or virtue and compassion or virtue and care. Oh, nobly born begin the Buddhist texts. Remember who you really are. Discover that you have within you 
whether you call it conscience, virtue, integrity, as your essence. And when you know this, then the fears of insecurity and self-interest and fear of dying, all those things that are natural to us as human beings, we have them all. They are somehow put in front of you and the integrity that you have is even bigger. There's this uh, description of um, a man named Mr. Liu who was locked up and put in the communist Chinese prison um, because he was speaking against the government order, the way things were, and land being stolen and various things that were wrong in his community. So he spoke out against the government. He was in prison for 11 years and forced to sit on this little wooden stool most of the time. And to get out of the prison, all he had to do was sign a paper that said that he had said the wrong things and that they weren't true. And for 11 years, he wouldn't sign the paper. And when he finally got out and somebody asked why he couldn't sign the paper, he said, I could see the faces of all the people that I live with, the people whose lands were stolen, the people that I cared about. And then I remembered what I cared about. And he said, so I sat. It sounds like Horton the Elephant. I sat and I sat and I sat and I sat and I simply couldn't do it. And there's something so magnificent about integrity when we awaken to it in ourselves. We become the king or the queen of the world, the benevolent one, whose every act is to bestow virtue and justice. And that's the kind of leadership one would like to discover and have and embody. Thomas Merton writes, Saints are holy not because of their own sanctity, but because they have the gift of sainthood that allows them to admire everyone else. That's really what a saint is. Not that they're so holy, but they can see the secret beauty of every single being that they meet. And so this is called Adisila. It is the discovery of the virtue as your birthright, your, your true integrity. And I have a story to read to you. Find it here. Abbot Anastasius had a book written on very fine parchment, which was worth 18 gold pence and had in it both the Old and the New Testament. And once a certain young brother came to visit him and seeing the book, valuable as it was, made off with it. So that day when Abbot Anastasius went to read, he found that the book was gone and he realized that the young brother had taken it. But he didn't send after him to inquire about it for fear that the brother might then add perjury to the theft. Well, the young brother went down into the nearby city, Alexandria, in order to sell the book. And the price he asked was 16 gold pence. The buyer said, give me the book that I might find out if it's worth this much. And with that, the buyer took the book back to the holy abbot, Anastasius, and said, Father, take a look at this book, please, and tell me whether you think I ought to buy it and whether 16 gold pence is a good price. Is it worth that much? The abbot held it up and said, yes, it is a fine book worth at least that much. 
So the buyer went back to the brother and said, here's your money. I showed the book to Abbot Anastasius, and he said it's a fine book worth at least 16 gold pence. And the brother asked, was that all he said? Didn't he make any other remarks? No, said the buyer. He didn't say another word. Well, said the brother, I've changed my mind. I don't want to sell the book after all. And he hastened back to the abbot and begged him with tears to take back his book, but the abbot would not accept it, saying, Go in peace, brother. I make you a gift of it. But the brother said, If you do not take it back, I shall never have any peace. And after that, the brother dwelled with Abbot Anastasius for the rest of his life among the desert fathers and their disciples. And you hear it in a little bit, it's impossible to imagine, but not completely impossible. And part of the delight of hearing that story is because it resonates with what we already know, with the kind of conscience and purity and integrity that was born into us. It's inexhaustible. It's timeless. It brings us blessings no matter how difficult things are. When Martin Luther King's church was bombed and, you know, children were killed and he said, we will match your capacity to inflict suffering with our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. There's something so ennobling about this. And so for Martin Luther King, again he goes on, I still believe that standing up for the truth is the greatest thing in the world. This is the end of life. The end of life is not to seek pleasure or to be happy and avoid pain. The end of life is to follow the sacred truth, come what may. And so you hear these stories not just as beautiful parables, but because they are in you. They are who you are. They know, you know, when you sit and quiet your mind and tend yourself, you will know what to do. You will know how to respond. You will know what's called for you. I got a phone call from one of my friends in Thailand who is a troublemaker. He's an official troublemaker. He was part of the extended royal family, and then he became kind of the Gandhi figure of Thailand, Ajahn Sulak, but he also became uh, a thorn in the side of the government. It's always a good place for a thorn to be. Um, and, and of the kind of establishment. And at one point he was going to be jailed for speaking something against the king, which is a great uh, kind of uh, stricture in Thailand that if someone does you get locked up and things like that. But he's the person who worked with the abbots of monasteries to take their robes and go and ordain the largest trees in the remaining forest and make them the abbots of the forest so no one would cut down the, that part of the forest. Um, he was a person who who helped in peace uh, in, in, in the monastics and um, bringing their whole monastic community at times to stand between warring factions of the governments or the demonstrating students or the Buddhists and the Muslims just to stand there and be a symbol of peace. He did all these wonderful things. 
Um, and he said, you know, they might throw me in jail for a long time. I need some friends. And I, I said, I'll, I'll be there, you know, if I can, if there's anything I can do. Because there's something so beautiful about standing up for what, what matters to you. The uh, words of the Buddha, be like the lion not frightened by noise. Be like the wind not caught in the web. Be like the lotus not stained by the mud. Find your own way like the rhinoceros. You will know which way to go. And the rhinoceros is this great creature, but also it doesn't follow the crowd. It follows what it knows more deeply inside. And so you begin to listen. Not in some ideal way or not to judge yourself, you know. We've done that too long. But to listen and to nourish and embody the things that you care about. And then it becomes your treasure. The scent of sandalwood, jasmine and rose bay travels only as far as the wind, says the Buddha. But the fragrance of virtue rises even to the gods. So you begin to discover what's possible in this way. So when we end, which will happen in a little bit, you might even want to write down what your reflection was so you can really remember it. And again, it's not about being idealistic. Sometimes all we can do is refrain from harming. And hallelujah, may that be so for us individually. For us as a nation, we are the largest arms exporter on the face of the earth. We sell tens of billions of dollars of killing machines all around the world. Now we worry that we're not so safe. Oh, let's build more of those. Um, let's pay attention to this. You know, sometimes all we can do is not harm or refrain from harm. But at other times, something is touched in you, in us, that brings out the nobility and the beauty of the king or queen in you, your virtue, your integrity. And it moves through you as if you are touched by the gods. Mark Twain says it's curious that physical courage should be so common in the world and moral, moral courage so rare. I don't think he's quite right. I actually think that there's a lot of courage in humanity and millions of acts of it every day. Um, but what's asked of us is to listen, say what can we contribute? What is our place and what is our part? And, you know, again, Thomas Jefferson in the same sort of way says, one person with courage is a majority. You have one person who really stands up for something. There's a tremendous power in your integrity. Yes, as Gandhi said, you know, they can throw me in prison. Yes, you can get, you know, consequences for it. But one person with courage is a majority can make extraordinary things happen. And I guess the last thing to say is this this is all actually about human happiness. You know, these are ways for us in our own lives to live, following the Dharma or the universal laws of things, how to quiet ourselves and find an inner freedom and balance that can embody what matters from our heart.
how to live a life that really ennobles us and expresses our, our Buddha nature. But the point is also not to make it a grim duty. If it feels that way, it's not virtue really. I mean, it's okay, you're practicing like training wheels, it's okay. Um, but actually there's something beautiful about it. Beautiful about telling the truth, beautiful about care for life, beautiful about attending to the those around us um, with this kind of loving awareness. So Molly Ivins, who is a great journalist in New York Times for a while in Texas and various places, she wrote sometime before she died, so keep fighting for freedom and justice, beloveds, but don't forget to have fun doing it. Be outrageous, rejoice in all the oddities freedom can produce, and when you get through celebrating the sheer joy of a good fight, be sure to tell those who follow how much fun it was. So there's something in that of the spirit that this is not about the grim duty. It's really about carrying something beautiful, which is who you really are.